You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Hello everyone, welcome to today's webinar on making goals count, using data to ensure no goal gets left behind. My name is Nicola Jones, I'm the Director of the Gender and Adolescence Global Evidence Gauge Program and a Principal Research Fellow at ODI. I'm going to be chairing today's session. So we're really delighted that more than 500 people registered to join us online today from all over the globe. We want to get as many of you involved in the discussion as possible, so please make sure to send your questions and comments to the chat room. So the first questions will be asked right after each speaker finishes, so there's no need for you to wait until the end of the session to engage. We're also going to be live tweeting using the hashtag GenderDataGap for this event. So please follow us on ODI Dev and Gage underscore program and retweet. So before I hand over to the panel, by way of introduction, I'd like to begin just very briefly by setting the stage. So looking back over the last 25 years since the Beijing Declaration and the Platform for Action, there is reason to celebrate progress for and with adolescent girls. And this point is being made clearly in the new Era for Girls report published last month by PLAN, UNICEF and UN Women, all represented on our panel today. The report highlights, for example, that the gender gap in all levels of education has narrowed significantly, with the number of girls out of school worldwide having dropped by 79 million between 1998 and 2018. Today, two and three girls of secondary school age globally are enrolled in secondary school compared to only one in two in 1998. Then in the case of child marriage, the proportion of young women who are married as children has declined from one in four to one in five. And indeed, when we look at the commitments within the SDGs, not just goal five on gender equality, but also the 53 gender specific targets across 11 goals, we can see marked progress compared to the Millennium Development Goals in making visible the importance of gender disaggregated outcomes. But as a recent Gage report on adolescence uh, and the SDG highlights, this is much more limited when we start to take an intersectional lens and look at disaggregating by gender and age and other social categories such as disability and refugee status. So our findings highlight these challenges. Uh, just bear with me while I get the, the tech working. Um, Sorry, give me one second. So hopefully you can see here um, that uh, our findings highlight that just 8% of the SDG targets are disaggregated by gender and adolescent age. Compounding this is the fact that these 18 indicators are clustered in just six goals. No poverty, health and well-being, education and learning, gender equality, decent work and sustainable cities. And so you can see in the next slide, if we then dig a bit deeper and want to understand how young people with disabilities are reflected in the targets of the 53 gender specific indicators, 
just two are disaggregated by disability and SGG8 on decent work. For adolescents from refugee and migrant communities, for only two of 15 indicators that are relevant to migrant and stateless populations, are gender and age disaggregated data being collected. Similarly, if we want to understand the challenges that young adolescents face, they are too often invisible. So for example, SDG 3.7 monitors adolescent birth rates, but there's no target for collecting country data on 10 to 14 year olds. But these are the girls who face the greatest risks in terms of maternal mortality or morbidity, as well as truncated life opportunities more broadly. So in short, if we're to ensure that the next 10 years of the SDGs are to be a decade of action that include adolescent girls, it's critical that we seek to address these important gender and age data gaps. And indeed, as I'm sure will also be reflected in our conversation today, we're seeing some of the same data gaps mirrored in current discussions around the response to the COVID-19 pandemic and beginning to hear a growing number of voices championing better age and gender disaggregated data to strengthen policies and programs to help mitigate the efforts of the evolving crisis and shore up resilience for all. So let us now turn to our panel, and we're really delighted to have such an esteemed lineup uh, assembled today to discuss the importance of uh, in uh, advancing gender and disaggregated data and making girls count in policy agendas and program investments. So I'm now delighted to begin by inviting our first panelist, A.B. Albrechtson, CEO of Plan International and the chair of the Adolescent Girls Investment Plan. So A.B., thanks so much for joining us today. The new, A New Era for Girls report that was released by Plan UNICEF and UN Women makes a really powerful point, I think, in the conclusions about better evidence being needed to ensure accountability for adolescent girls and diverse groups of girls. So it'd be great if you could begin by sharing with us how Plan and the AGIP initiative, including in the context of the Generation Equality Action Coalitions, are contributing to efforts to harness evidence to inform action and coordinated investments for and with girls. Over to you, A.B. Thank you very much, uh, Nicola, for that question and greetings to fellow panelists and everybody listening. Um, special thanks to ODI for organizing this webinar um, and inviting me to, to, to shine a, a light on the invisibility of adolescent girls in global frameworks. Um, it's a lovely way for us to connect. We know that we all have to work differently also, not just because of COVID, but because of the climate crisis. And this is such a powerful demonstration of how we can do that. So turning to your question, um, the Adolescent Girls Investment Plan Initiative is a fantastic new partnership that includes a number of the organizations represented um, on the panel together with other civil society organizations, research institutions, foundations, and girls-focused collectives. The collaboration, also known as AGIP, a terrible acronym we know, but um, it's the best we've been able to come up with. Um, it's co-chaired by Plan International and Girls Not Brides. And the other members include uh, Women Deliver, IPPF, the Population Council, uh, ODI, um, Nicola's an active engaged member of the board, um, ICRW, Ford Foundation and Malala Fund. 
We've received um, considerable technical support also from the Gates Foundation. Um, and the whole initiative is funded by the members of the coalition, um, a very generous chunk from the Ford Foundation, um, and we're all putting in staff resources and efforts just so that you can sort of see how that's framed. Now, the main objective of AGIP is to come up with a holistic framework for investments in the adolescent girl that treats girls as a whole person and recognizes the interplay between their different needs, looking at education and health and leadership and SRHR and other areas of girls' lives um, because they are fundamentally interlinked and a siloed approach is simply not going to get us to where we we need. We're seeking to close the large and persistent gap between funding, evidence and the commitments that have consistently been made to adolescent girls, but not actually led to real changes on the ground. So the partnership is developing investment frameworks and tools to support decision makers in government and local government and across institutions to deliver a comprehensive um, approach to advance gender equality through girl-centered action, especially in low and middle income countries. These frameworks and tools, they'll promote accountability to adolescent girls, deliver cost-efficient, evidence-informed and equitable programs, and make effective use of financial and human uh, resources. Our, um, our learning so far is that while we have quite a bit of evidence as to what works, in terms of good investments, we're also seeing that investments are not necessarily evidence-based um, and therefore that the, the little data and evidence we do have isn't even being used uh, for the interventions that donors and others are funding. Um, ATRIP members um, have gathered at a critical moment uh, during the design and co-creation of uh, the gender equality um, um, a generation Equality Initiative, and we decided very early on that we wanted to try and advocate for a dedicated action coalition for the adolescent girl. Unfortunately, we weren't fully successful in that, but together we've been able to raise the voice and presence of the unique needs of the adolescent girls. And as we speak and during the launch of the action coalitions, um, around generation equality, we were very pleased to see that everybody has committed to making sure that each action coalition um, has a specific adolescent girl action and commitment. Um, and um, in, in the preparation for the various forums that have now unfortunately been, um, been postponed, uh, we've been able to continue the work on creating a real accountability mechanism so that everybody engaged in Beijing Platform for Action follow-up and generation equality um, initiatives uh, will be held to account for actually this time delivering meaningful action for the adolescent girl. Back to you, Nicola. Thank you, A.B. I mean, I think it's really exciting to see. I guess one of the things it'd be good to get you to reflect on is, you know, at the beginning of this year, there was considerable optimism that 2020 was going to be transformative and, and fast-tracking progress towards gender equality, including for adolescent girls. How do you see this playing out now within the, the current context of the, the pandemic? Do we still have 
reason for optimism within this current very challenging context? I don't think any of us, even the, the biggest optimists, can pretend that the COVID-19 crisis has not disrupted the momentum that was, was building over the autumn and in the early part of this year. Um, I think webinars like this and other activities and this stoic efforts of UN women and others to try and keep that momentum alive are helping us. But we're also seeing, as we speak on the ground, country by country, major setbacks in the upholding of the rights um, of girls, young women, women in general, um, and they are deeply affected by the lockdowns as we speak, and we may see further rollback um, of the, the, the impressive gains that we have, have made. So, so it's, a, it's a double picture, but um, as a group together, I also think that the Adolescent Girls um, um, Investment Plan Initiative can, can help uh, governments um, put in place the right kinds of policies, both for the lockdown period, as well as the post-COVID uh, reopening of societies, making sure that the adolescent girl gets back to school, making sure that the, the battered health systems um, offer better services to the adolescent girls and so forth. So we are putting, as we speak together, policy documents um, outlining these key asks and, and we just invite everybody that's listening to, um, to help us build those policy asks and to multiply them and put them in front of government so that we can build new and reinforced momentum um, around gender equality, even in light of COVID. Thank you. Yes, definitely a, a really complex situation we find ourselves in. Um, we've just had a, a comment in from the floor um, asking uh, that many grassroots activists and organizers find themselves on the outskirts of the global community if they're not connected in networks or through large NGOs. Um, and the question is whether you can share some insights into how um, organizations like this could generate data with limited budgets and even use it to access funding opportunities to maximize their work and impact. So the, the, the coalition of partners being, being mainly large northern either NGOs or funders, foundations, research institutions have been acutely aware that we needed to, to put those organizations also at the center of our efforts and make sure that whatever we do in terms of investment planning and policy recommendations, investment recommendations, um, also drives both funding and resources, knowledge and networks uh, to grassroots organizations. Because all evidence from the past demonstrates to us already that without strong local grassroots uh, um, organizations focusing on the adolescent girls, um, the, the impact of the programs and investments will be less. Thank you, AB. I think that's very helpful and I think we can probably pick up on that theme again in the, the longer Q&A later. Um, so now I'm very happy to call on our second panelist, Lauren Rumble, who's the Principal Advisor on Gender and the Chief of the Gender and Rights Section at UNICEF. Thank you very much for joining, Lauren. Um, I'd like, thank you. 
Uh, I'd like to ask you to begin by reflecting back over the last 25 years since the Beijing Declaration and to just highlight in your view what you see as the advances uh, in terms of better gender and age desegregated to date um, and you know what we should be collectively taking stock of in terms of how we can draw on that data to advance policies and program investments. Thanks so much, Nicola. It's a real pleasure to be here today with such a fabulous panel and to be making the most of our virtual connectivity these days. Um, I'm going to actually, I've been on so many Zoom calls lately that I've benefited from having images when others are talking. So I'm going to do the same and just share my screen here for a second. Let's see if it works. <clears throat> Can you see that, Nicola? Can't, unfortunately. I think you might have had the same challenge I had. <laughs> oh, no, it's coming. It's here. It's here. Great. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so much for your patience, everybody. So what we have here is a picture of some amazing young women uh, celebrating change, which the report that you and Avi referred to, um, A New Era for Girls, deliberately has a question mark in the title. It's a question mark because we're looking at some good news and some bad news. And here, what's exciting about this report is that it doesn't present any particularly new data, but it does prevent, for the first time, multiple data points for girls. So we have a more vivid and holistic, as AB said, picture of girls' lives today compared to 25 years ago. And in this way, um, it seems like a fairly obvious point, but it, data can tell us a story of the trajectory of our work, our collective advocacy around the world as policymakers, social justice advocates, feminists, and researchers, what's worked on our interventions and where we really need to focus our advocacy going forward. So let's look at some of that good news I mentioned. You talked about a decline in child marriage, and we've seen this um, less significantly also with female genital mutilation. Girls are in a much better place than they were 25 years ago. And this is one of the few SDG indicators that's actually moved forward in a positive way, that's actually seen as, as a shift. And this is exciting because child marriage is in a way a sharp edge proxy for other indicators for girls, poverty, education, and the value that society places on girls. So in some ways, this is a success for the global community. What it doesn't tell us, of course, is the data in the 10 to 14 year old age group um, and the discrepancies between uh, geog ge geographic regions and age. The more good news on the left, you talked about incredible gains in primary education in particular. And I know that um, Nicola from the Pop Council will be talking more about this. But we see here, yes, more girls than ever are enrolled in and completing primary school. So these good gains um, tell us that we need to continue this, uh, these efforts to really solidify our work in these areas. And then, of course, there's the less good news, which I'll talk about in a second. Back to you, Nicola. Thank you, Lauren. Um, I mean, I think that would be um, very important to, to focus in on now is your highlights around the key gaps um, and how those data gaps uh, make uh, investments in tailored interventions more challenging. Um, so perhaps you could just highlight for us where better data could be supporting stronger interventions. 
I'm going to focus on two strands, what the data tells us and what's missing from the data. So in the same slide, we can see that we don't have such significant gains in uh, secondary education. Immediately as girls start becoming adolescents, they start dropping out. And of course, the transition to work is highly problematic. We know that for the few that do make it to decent work, they're paid less than men um, and are subject to violence and discrimination in the workplace. And part of that is rooted in norms, which is the graphic on the right. It's one of my favorite data points, which is about the acceptability of wife beating around the world. And we see that even amongst young people, this graph is about adolescent girls age and boys, uh, 15 to 19 years. We're seeing that almost um, more than a third and overall very high numbers of, both of adolescents believe that wife beating is acceptable for any reason. Let's look at another norms-based indicator in many ways, which is the prevalence of new infections, which is concentrated amongst adolescent girls in particular, related to their ability to say no, to make decisions over their own body, to access services and have access to information. And another whammy around norms, where we're really looking at what's happening with time use in the household. We see that girls are spending much more time than boys on household chores. And this translates into adulthood. Women do up to three times more care work than men, including in the home. So if we think about the COVID-19 situation, which both AB and you refer to, we can see a real solidification of these fractures, a deepening of the divides. If this was a situation pre-crisis, imagine what life looks like now for girls and women in the home, and particularly adolescent girls. And we can hark back to the Ebola crisis, which a lot of the activists are talking about now, where we saw a significant drop in secondary school attendance by adolescent girls during school closures. And those girls often didn't come back due to pregnancy and having to really take on family burdens, as well as an increase in um, transactional sex and exploitation. So what do we need to do? We need to invest right away in shifting these norms and placing a greater value on girls in society. We've tried to make this argument. This is a case study from our regional office in Western Central Africa. And I believe my colleague Perna might be online with us to explain more if anybody has any questions for her. Where adolescent girl data, we did again a sort of um, summary and synthesis of population-based data, high quality, rigorously collected and analyzed data, and built an investment case for girls in the region with a collection of also promising program practices, voices from girls themselves through human interest stories, and then try to mobilize increased investment, particularly from the private sector. And what we saw was a tremendous interest in uh, joining forces between the public and private sectors, as well as with the development community, in investing in girls' skills and empowerment, trying to break this terrible uh, divide between school and work and ultimately empowerment. So where do we all land on this? Our recommendations as, a, as an organization and personally too, oh, let me go back. Excuse me. Um, we're really proud of the fact that UNICEF is able to be a custodian of key SDG indicators. We see the power of collecting this kind of trend um, information worldwide and give us this global picture. It tells us where as a global community, we need to really ramp up our efforts. We're not satisfied. Coming back to that question mark in the title of the report, a new era for girls? Not so much unless we really accelerate efforts and take girls away from the sidelines and put them at the priority of our investments, our advocacy and our programs, we're, not, we're going to see unsatisfying change in those major indicators. 
Where we need to uh, invest as well is in more creative and innovative ways of collecting research. Um, for those of us who've worked in the field for many years, we have an unsatisfying amount of operational research in the Global South. Real-time data that's telling us what's working about our interventions. Where are they really satisfying the needs uh, of the communities? What are girls appreciating? What do we need to do more of? We need more qualitative studies and quasi-experimental studies, particularly in humanitarian contexts. And we need to be as creative as possible, engaging adolescents as co-researchers. For example, on sexual violence, we know that uh, many girls in regions and contexts where sexual violence is taboo will not participate in household surveys. They'd much prefer to engage in private, anonymous and confidential data collection methods using technology or ICASI, for example. But population measures continue to be important. And I'd love for us to ramp up together as a community new global indicators ultimately calling us to account on adolescent mental health, gender norms, which I focused on so much today, adolescent girls empowerment, and of course, time use. Thank you so much, Nicola. Over. Me just stops. Thanks very much, Laura. Some really critical points there, and particularly about uh, the need to invest in a diversity of research methodologies to really capture the complexities of, of girls' lives. Uh, one of the questions in from the audience um, would like you to reflect in that vein on how uh, better data could be um, invested in to ensure that girls with disabilities are counted um, and that their needs are taken account of much more than they currently are in resource poor countries. So some thoughts on that, please. Thank you so much. And thank you to those who are sharing these kinds of questions. This is part of about making uh, the invisible more visible. And I think a concerted effort is required in the design of research. It does take um, extra deliberate measures in the design, in the training of the research, and in the ways that we're creative about it. And coming back to adolescence as co-researchers, this is where it's really important to engage young people in what questions would you like to be asked? Where can we ask those questions where you feel most comfortable in responding? And does this reflect, when once the findings are out, the realities that you're feeling every day? So constantly engaging in throughout the research process is a way to uh, really engage um, children with disabilities and other um, groups that are usually left out from important studies of this nature. Um, and then coming back to financing, and I'm sure this will be echoed by my other panelists, um, I think it's woeful that the funding we have for innovative data collection at scale, particularly on the ground operational research, qualitative studies, is still unavailable. Most of us are working on shoestring budgets. And those doing frontline work seldom have money for research collection, the research that's going to tell them more about how to really meet the needs of adolescents and children with disabilities, for example. Thanks, Lauren. And connected to that, another very interesting question has just popped up. Um, so this person is asking, as someone in the private sector, we use data regularly to mobilize resources and generate results. How can the not-for-profit sector apply a business mindset to big data to learn more about the realities of young people's lives without compromising the humanity of its subjects, girls? Do you have any? Quick responses yeah. to that one? I think it's a great question and one we're grappling with just at the moment with the current crisis. As uh, girls' worlds are becoming more virtual, so too should we. 
and as their needs are shifting real time, so should our data collection methods. So we've had in place now for a couple of years with over 8 million children engaged, something called U-Report, which is an online platform to both collect data from young people as well as share information. And it's been particularly popular with refugee and migrant children, um, giving us real-time data about what they're thinking of, what their priorities are, what their needs are in terms of humanitarian aid, and then being able to share information, for example, safe migration routes, access to uh, identity documentation, their rights, and so on. Um, so I think we need more platforms like that. We also would love to collaborate more with the private sector, with social media companies and others to really study trends in big data in a safe and ethical way, of course, and making sure that we are respecting the privacy of data users um, and the children who are participating themselves. But to see shifts in norms, what are young people thinking about now? I wonder if we were to measure that indicator I love so much around intimate partner violence. Um, are we seeing conversations shifting around how dangerous it is, or are we seeing a darkening uh, of dialogue around this? Thanks for the question. Let's do more of that. Great. Thank you very much, Lauren. So I'm now going to turn to our third panelist, and it's my pleasure to invite Papasek, the Chief Statistician from UN Women. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Papa. Um, as a statistician, I'd like to ask you what you see are perhaps the low-hanging fruits in terms of how we can start addressing the very significant age and gender disaggregated data gaps that we've been discussing so far. Uh, uh, yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, um, uh, again, thanks for for inviting me to to be part of this uh, uh, this, pan this this panel. And uh, 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 so. Uh, just I think building on uh, Lauren's uh, points, uh, uh, there are a few things that uh, um, I think essentially we know how to measure now. Uh, and uh, you know uh, whether we are talking about education, nutrition, child marriage, and also based on uh, and linked to one of the questions that was asked earlier, link, uh, based on some of the great work that UNICEF has done recently on. Uh, on uh, uh, measuring uh, disability, I think you know we will see soon. Really, I think a sea change in terms of data on uh, uh, on adolescent girls and uh, and disability. So uh, uh, I think you know violence against girls also uh, the the field has advanced quite a bit, and uh, surveys do a very good job at collecting that uh, that kind of information. And um, you know uh, now, for instance, compared to ten years ago. And although we do have some gaps, I think there's already a lot that can be done with existing data. And um, uh, uh, the picture that I have on the screen now is just one such example, where you know uh, I think uh, if we uh, are to address the, the leave no one behind principle of the SDGs, particularly, I think uh, uh, we can really use existing information to to uh, uh, to. Uh, to really uh, get some some key insights. Uh, for example, we know that uh, early motherhood results in many adverse implica uh, implications for adolescent girls, including limiting their educational attainment and uh, subsequent occupational prospects. Not to talk about uh, not to talk about safety issues and uh, health and so on. And here we uh, basically used uh, existing uh, uh, household surveys, DHS and MIX. Uh, to analyze the quintiles by uh, the, res the results by quintile, 
And what we see is uh, essentially some stark inequalities uh, between groups, and uh, really pointing to some, uh, you know, some of the uh, policy initiatives that can be undertaken to to address these challenges. So, on your question about the low-hanging fruit, I think it lies in investments in analytical capacities and using existing data. Uh, we can precisely uh, try to do that. So, UN Women is working currently with the UN Statistics Division, for instance. Uh, to better utilize existing household survey data and uh, other sources to provide more and finally disaggregated gender and age disaggregated uh, data and, uh, and indicators on uh, priority uh, themes linked to the SDGs, but also uh, to national uh, priorities in consultation with uh, national stakeholders. And leveraging, leveraging on these learnings, we will be developing a toolkit that will be presented to the UN Statistical Commission, hopefully in 2021. And, uh, but I think there are also some areas where more needs to be done, including in measuring emerging forms of violence, such as cyber violence, for instance. Issues related to agency and participation, which I think uh, Lauren just mentioned now, as well as uh, how do we start better using uh, administrative sources and citizen science in particular to better understand and measure the issues that uh, matter for adolescent groups. Thank you. Thanks very much, Papa. Um, I think some of your, your comments are prompting quite a lot of um, interesting thoughts from the audience. So a couple that have just come up that present sort of two sides of the same coin, um, picking up on your point about cyber um, issues. Uh, the first one is with regards to virtual data and online platforms, the concern is that this excludes a myriad of adolescents who live in rural areas. So how can we triangulate community data? And then on the other side, um, one of the um, online participants has asked, can online or social media have a role in collecting more data? So it'd be great to get your thoughts on on how do we both harness social media and online data, but also make sure that those in remote rural communities are, are not excluded and um, you know don't miss out on being counted. Yeah. So I think uh, um, essentially uh, with the SDGs we need we, with the SDGs we we do have some uh, uh, important data needs, and uh, in this case, you know, uh, my opinion is that. Uh, uh, a single data source cannot solve all problems. So we will have to use different sources of information and also learning to better measure the issues that matter to particular populations. So just as an example, if we are doing a, a survey on violence against women, the same questions that will be asked, that should be asked uh, maybe adolescent girls and, uh, and, 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 and you know, younger women shouldn't be the same as those asked to older women because they face different issues. So I think in this case, uh, um, uh, surveys that national statistical systems are conducting are absolutely critical, I think, to get information from on uh, rural areas, for instance. But also, uh, uh, as I mentioned, working with civil society and true citizen science, for instance, to really try to get to the information that is critical. And, and I think, and I really like Lauren's point on that. So in this case, I think it's really using different sources of information 
but also being inclusive in terms of what we measure and how we measure it. And I think that's the only way we can really start to, to, to really get at the information gap that we have. And on the second question, uh, 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 I think uh, there's a lot that can be done with social media platforms. But at the same time, linked to the first question, we need to understand also what are the biases in each data source, right? So what is being covered and what is not being covered? So who is included, who is excluded? And understanding that, and also I think bringing in some really strong governance uh, of uh, basically uh, 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 online platforms and et cetera, I think can really get us to where we want to be. Because at the end of the day, I think, you know, again, these are conversations that I've had with uh, several large tech companies. I think there's a lot that is happening on uh, online. And not only uh, is there a responsibility to collect that information, there is also a responsibility to act on it. So be part of the solutions rather than just identifying the problem. So in this case, I think, you know, again, this is uh, really something that uh, large tech companies in particular and social media platforms can be a force for good, both by collecting the information, but also by acting on it. And uh, if anything, just talking to authorities to make sure that such a violence also can be, can be, uh, can be stopped. Great, thank you. And one final question um, relating to uh, this year being the five-year progress mark of the SDGs. Um, should we be looking to see new uh, age and gender disaggregated targets added in, or is it about um, advocating for, for countries to do that rather than hoping that we'll be able to get a global consensus? So that's a, another emerging issue from the audience. Yeah, um, um, I think um, uh, in the sense, um, um, what uh, what I think uh, matters quite a bit in this case is basically, you know, we, um, if you just take the UN system, for instance, we have the decade for action. Okay, by the way, I'm on now. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> We're all having to juggle different new worlds now. So. Uh, uh, I think with the decade of action and so on, there are lots of priorities that we need to address. And uh, uh, for me, I think the uh, the key is basically there's a lot that have been has been uh, that we have on uh, on um, uh, um, uh, basically on our agenda. And frankly speaking, I think what's missing is basically the those policy actions that can really transform uh, you know the lives of adolescent girls. And making sure that basically governments are accountable for this and making, uh, putting essentially resources behind this agenda. To me, I think that is where really where, where, where we need to, it's not setting new targets. Obviously, I think if we see new and emerging issues, we need to address them and particularly with the COVID crisis. And in this case, I think as a community, for instance, what we need to do is make sure that in governance policy, government's policy responses, we look at them very carefully to understand how they are addressing the priorities of girls. So, you know, how they are making sure that girls are not losing out as a result of this crisis. So, again, I mean, to me, it's the actions that governments and, uh, you know, the international community need to take rather than setting new targets. Great, thank you, Papa. I think it's a very important point around accountability, and I, I think it um, fits in nicely to uh, the 
focused of uh, Nicole's uh, intervention next. So um, thank you very much, Papra. And I'd like to turn to Nicole Havilland, who's our fourth panelist today. She's a senior research fellow at the Population Council. Thanks very much for joining, Nicole. Thank you. Your... Sorry. Sorry, there's a bit of a lag. Uh, so given your expertise um, at the POP Council in adolescent girl-centered programming, it would be great if you could reflect on that question around accountability and the ways in which um, addressing gender data gaps can help strengthen adolescent girls' um, empowerment and voice and agency. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nicola, AB, uh, Lauren, and Papa. Those are really interesting threads, and I'm, I can't wait to everybody to follow up and have a discussion. Um, hello, everyone. Um, so yes, um, disaggregated data are absolutely key um, for that. Um, age, sex, marital status, rural versus urban residents, in versus out of school, working, not working, where girls fall along these characteristics find their distinct situation. Um, and key, I think we need to also remember, is to look at the subnational level. Um, as we, we all know, variation with any country is enormous. Um, but as others have noted, um, while disaggregate data are urgently needed, we also need to make sure that the data are accessible and used to inform investments, program development, um, to prioritize participants, and more. Um, so, to help facilitate data and evidence use, um, the Population Council's Girl Center, um, in partnership with Echidna Giving, I'm going to share my screen now. Um, can you see the slide? Yes, we can, thanks. Excellent, okay, great. Um, so we've just launched, soft launched, um, the Evidence for Gender and Education resource. Um, Eager, um, Eager is a unique web portal that pulls together needs data on girls' education. It maps who, so implementers, funders, advocates, researchers, um, who is doing what, where, and how in the gender and education space and curates evidence um, from recent and ongoing systematic reviews, all in an easy to use, um, searchable living database. Users can search for donors, for partners, for evidence, and more. Um, I'm gonna share some screenshots and you can explore eager yourself at eagerresource.org. Um, please just bear in mind this site is live and already includes 250 organizations and 500 programs, but by its nature, it's a work in progress. <laughs> we wanted to soft launch to give users a chance to interact with it and share their feedback while we continue to add data and fix bugs here and there. Um, and then, with your input, we look forward to a full launch this fall, along with a girls' education roadmap. Um, so while we'll continue to expand the database of programs and evidence that underlie Eager, um, we have enough data entered at this point to start seeing sort of the emerging contours of the gender and education field. So let's take a quick look at Eager um, and what it can help illuminate. This screenshot um, from Eager shows girls' primary school completion rates. 
um, the darker the shading, the greater the proportion of girls who complete primary school. So some countries are missing data, but most countries actually do have sex disaggregated data for this indicator. Um, question is, and I think um, one of the, our co-panelists also asked this, even with the availability of data, is actual practice aligned? Here, um, we've used the Eager Map Builder um, to layer courage programs that aim to increase girls' primary school completion onto the school completion needs data. What you can see is that even though the needs data are available for girls, program investments are not necessarily directed to countries with the worst indicators. For example, in Benin, just 44% of girls complete primary school, but so far we've just only identified two programs that address primary school completion. Whereas in Rwanda, which has a roughly similar population size, 61% of girls complete primary. There are three times as many organizations addressing this issue. Also key is the next step, aligning practice with evidence of what works. Um, the evidence to practice tool in Eager lets users explore specific outcome and program approach relationships. You can explore which approaches are effective or not. <laughs> For achieving a specific outcome. Or if you're curious about a specific approach and you'd like to see which outcomes that approach affects, you can search the outcomes. And this screenshot shows that for our example of primary school completion, there's another data gap. <laughs> um, what works is not clear yet from the existing evidence. And finally, circling back to the disaggregation problem, even though the education sector does often disaggregate enrollment, as Nicola pointed out, and learning data by sex, a lot of evaluations don't. Looking through the evidence to practice tool, we've been struck by how many results we have for girls and boys combined, but not for girls alone or boys alone. How helpful is it to disaggregate performance indicators by sex? We don't disaggregate evaluations. So, Come, check out Eager um, at eagerresource.org. Um, join us, get your programs in the Eager database, um, use it, and tell us what you think. Um, thanks so much. Thank you, Nicole. Um, very interesting. Very excited to, to dig into the, the tool in more depth. Um, a couple of the questions that have been coming online, I think, to speak to some dimensions about some of the challenges that adolescent girls face in um, getting a quality education. So there's one question in asking about um, access to um, safe um, and affordable transportation in different locations and the extent to which um, there is data and, and programming to address that. And also a question in from Site Savers um, asking about the extent to which um, there are uh, you know, programming to address the, the particular needs of, of young people with disabilities. So I don't know whether you could reflect on the extent to which Eager is able to shed some light yeah. on both of those. Um, those are great questions. So what we've done is each program that we've identified, people we've gotten data two ways. People um, have either completed um, questionnaires themselves or we've um, extracted data from publicly available um, websites and things. So, and then what we've done is each organization and program we tagged um, by, for example, um, what 
what interventions they're working on and what the components of that intervention are, but also what populations they're working with, what age groups, um, that, um, status such as disability and marital status and um, um, refugees. So users are able to search the database by, by, use, by using those tags and um, they can create tables um, that then will show all the all the programs that work, for example, with um, on safe and affordable transportation, for example. And then in the evidence to practice um, tool, they can go and see what the evidence um, says is, are the effects of um, safe and effective, safe and affordable transportation. And I just, um, spoiler alert, I looked the other day and right now there is not a lot of evidence about, um, at least in terms of education outcomes, um, we need to do more research um, about the effects of um, safe and affordable transportation. And so that, that's one, I think, of the things we'll be seeing coming out of here. It's a really um, very uh, granular way to identify what the data gaps are and what, where we're lacking, um, where we're really behind on the research. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nicole. Um, there are a number of questions that I think um, would be uh, very you know, exciting to hear the reflections from the different panelists. So I think at this stage, I will open up and AB, maybe we can start with you so we can still um, catch you while you're online with us. Um, so there are two key strands to the questions that have come in. The first one is asking, uh, how do you feel um, this approach to gender data chimes with feminist theory? Do we need to be radical as well as strategic in terms of efforts to collect gender data on adolescent uh, girls? That is, can we show what would be the impacts of not collecting this data? And how could we use forecasting approaches to show some of the potential impacts of not understanding these issues? So very interesting question there. And then there's a second cluster of questions that are asking about um, what more can we do to be supporting young people and, and young women in particular to use this data in uh, advocacy forums, particularly in the current context where you know many of these formal opportunities have been postponed or cancelled, you know, what are the opportunities that young people can be harnessing uh, in this current climate? So, um, yeah, any of those uh, that you would like to reflect on? Maybe everyone can take one or two of them and um, we'll start with you, Amy. Thank you. Yeah, um, thanks. Maybe let me let me try just quickly to give some examples. So the question about um, can we demonstrate the impact of the absence of of the data? We Plan International did a um, a report I think about three years ago where we looked into that in depth. Um, and certainly one thing that sprang very much to mind is the complete absence of data that comes with birth registration. We know that there are about 2 million births every year that go unregistered. And therefore, if you don't even exist um, as a data point, you might, in, um, you, you obviously exist as a human being, but if, if society and those that make policy don't, don't see 
the numbers coming up, how can they plan for your education and health, etc. So, I mean, that's a very brutal uh, reality for for millions of of children around the world. Um, in terms of the the, the radicality um, and a feminist approach to to this, I deeply believe that we need some radical action. Um, many of the data sets that are collected and looked at across the world have basically remained largely the same for 20, 30 years. Um, the, the, the data community, um, especially around the national statistics, and many of them have had low capacity, etc., but the sets themselves have not radically changed. So it does strike me that we, we do need to, to get quite disruptive about how we collect data, who we collect it from, how we hear voices, what kinds of data uh, that are brought into um, policy making fora. And it actually does link a little bit to the last question, which is how can we use the COVID situation as we are connecting, for example, again at PLAN with um, with our partners and 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 the girls that we work with through everything from WhatsApp, Facebook, various social media, where they're sharing with us how is COVID-19 impacting them real time as we speak. We're trying to find ways of not necessarily getting that into UN fora, but actually getting that to the district authorities um, in their countries to put it in front of ministers of health, ministers of of women and children and youth and others real time so that they can hear directly from those that are impacted by the crisis. So that's a disruptive way of bringing evidence of the real lived experience to the policy table. Very exciting to hear. Um, we're doing something similar in Gage at the moment. Um, and I think just capturing the diversity of experiencing experiences that young girls um, are facing at the moment is so critical. There's certainly no one experience. Um, and we, you know, I think what we're seeing on the news versus what we're hearing from young people is so opposed. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of shaking up that needs to happen, I think. So very much welcome that intervention. Um, Lauren, can we hand over to you? What a great question. I like it so much. And thanks for the responses so far. I mean, one of the most wonderful things about feminist thinking is that the personal is political and data collection. What we choose to measure is ultimately what we do. And so if we are to be truly feminist in our data work, uh, as social justice advocates, we must collect those things that are currently invisible in large population-based surveys. So why is it we do not have a global measure for girls' empowerment? And I know, Nicola, this is an issue close to your heart. And why isn't such a measure incorporated seriously into policy and decision-making? Why do we not have a way of capturing on a regular basis girls' voices? If we don't do that, we continue to silence them from the actions we want to see. And I think with COVID-19, we have a real opportunity to reset um, and to use another feminist argument. Feminism is for everybody, but to make data for everyone. And it's only going to happen with more diverse methods of collection, more engagement from young people. We must move away from only school-based and home-based surveys, for example, and really embrace innovation uh, and creativity. Over. Great, thanks very much, Lauren. Uh, Papa, your reflections on these questions? 
Yes, uh, thanks very much. And um, uh, for me, I think uh, basically the revolution has to be in how data are used. Uh, so uh, um, uh, that's, you know, basically I think because again, I think national statistical offices and so on do produce quite a lot of data. They don't produce nearly enough, but they do produce a lot. But in my work, I think where we've really has had a schism is essentially how that data is used. Because usually it languishes in, a, what do you call it, in, a, in a reports or in platforms or, you know, data platforms and so on. But rarely do you see actually that evidence being used in parliaments or in discussions around policies to, to really uh, uh, basically uh, make a dent in uh, uh, really, really in, in what matters, which are the, the outcomes that understand uh, women and girls face. And uh, in this case, I think this is going to be absolutely critical. And if, uh, in my opinion, that's where the disruption will need to be. If, uh, as expected, countries are emerging out of um, that will be emerging out of this crisis will focus on looking at and you know that's pretty much what every country will do look at what the economic damage has been right there will be lots of issues that probably won't be prioritized in this case and i think as a community our responsibility will be to make sure that basically uh, adolescent girls and uh, basically groups that are generally uh, uh, underrepresented are at the seat and have evidence in hand to advocate for their own issues to be included in uh, in whatever the recovery packages and the recovery policies will be. To me, that will be the game changer. Again, using information that we have in order to make sure that uh, those issues are reflected in policies and programs. Thank you for that. There's a follow-up question, Papa, from Chamata Fernando, um, who's asking that without CSW and with the postponement of generation equality forums, how can we in the meantime, before the moment that you're talking about, keep girls' rights on the agenda and be using data in real time to maximize our efforts um, on advocacy? Um, and she's asking for some specific examples from UN Women um, and the efforts that you're undertaking globally. So um, um, uh, obviously, you know, again, I think for us it was a disappointment that uh, CSW was postponed and uh, generation equality. Well, CSW was not cancelled, but it was uh, basically a breach, if you will, uh, and uh, generation equality was postponed. And uh, again, uh, you know, uh, but. Uh, I think the key here to, is to say that uh, CSW essentially, although uh, was basically, I think, sh uh, short, there are still some processes that are happening essentially, you know, through uh, the what is, ECOSOC and so on, where, you know, uh, some of the decisions that uh, countries are still looking at the agenda for CSW going forward and so on. So it's just to say that there's still work by the Bureau that is happening. And this is, I think, where you and women as the secretariat, of course, uh, can uh, can really have, I think, a, 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 an influence. And on uh, generation equality, you know, again, uh, uh, I think the postponement is uh, is uh, is something that we've had to do. But uh, it also, I think, in my opinion, at least, gives us a little more room to be better prepared because there was, I think, a very short time frame to make it all happen. Uh, having, I think, some extra time to understand exactly what has happened to 
what has happened, I think there will be uh, a lot of room for policy uh, again uh, in the coming year. And in my opinion, I think that gives us really, I think, uh, a good opportunity to make sure that we advocate for those issues to be included in large, large response packages that will be that are being enacted and that are that will be enacted by countries. So some of the work that you know, just as an example, that we are doing now is the you know, for instance, uh, uh, I just talk about the work that I that I'm doing now is uh, uh, really I think coordinated some global data collection. <laughs> Uh, on uh, the, the uh, impact of COVID on uh, uh, gender, and in this case, really including a strong age and gender perspective. But also uh, some of the research products that we have coming uh, uh, on the pipeline is really meant to address those issues. For instance, looking at uh, uh, response packages and how they prioritize gender equality and particular, particular groups and so on. So I think, again, uh, really putting uh, adequate information out there to say that this was the impact of the crisis and these are the things that can be done to to, to really address them. So uh, just as an example of some of the things that I'm involved in, and but UN Women, I think at large is really uh, locked in, both in terms of responding to the crisis, understanding what happened, and also uh, 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 proposing some policy solutions and programs that can address it. Thank you. I, I think it's yeah, very encouraging to hear that we can use um, you know, the current situation also as an opportunity for advancing these agendas. Uh, Nicole, uh, would you like to reflect on either of those questions? Um, sure. Thank you. Um, thanks so much. And I completely concur with um, what Papa and Lauren and Ibi have said. I think the need to expand um, what we are measuring to encompass these more gender um, focused indicators is so long overdue it's falling um, because and if there's not data on a topic then people don't see it as a problem you can't bring it to policymakers you can't it's like it become we've made this entire area invisible by not having um, the right the right data and the right asking the right questions. Um, just a couple of things that from the council's work, um, our colleagues in India, they're working on, for example, developing a measure of adolescent girls agency. And there's been a lot of work of course around adult women um, over the years and people have used different um, indicators to, you know, proxies for agencies such as mobility or household decision making. But um, our colleagues in India are working on a measure that's appropriate for adolescent girls um, and adolescent boys. Um, and the um, the idea of um, sort of um, piggybacking on what is you know a great tragedy um, with with COVID, um, we have a number of um, um, studies where we have a sample, an existing sample of of young people and have been able to reach out to them to do real-time um, telephone surveys and asking them about their experience and knowledge and practice in response to response to the pandemic um, and if people are interested my um, colleague um, Twy and Karen have just published something I believe and I can send that around but it's uh, doing it things like this quickly bringing that feminist lens um, and and you know, and just being 
persistent. And I think the more we can try to get to a place where people are measuring a similar thing, I think one of the reasons the um, the attitudes towards um, spousal abuse is so is used so much is because people multiple people use it, you know. So it's something we can compare across across um, countries, across age groups. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of work we need to do, and if you know, and it's long overdue. Um, so yeah, thanks for that question and great ideas. Great, thank you, Nicole. I mean, picking up on this idea about the need to be radical but strategic, uh, there's a question here from an audience member asking, because it's a cross-cutting issue, the gender data ecosystem is so fragmented. Is that just a fact of life, or are there examples of national data commissions which compel ministries and CSOs to set standards and disaggregated uh, and disaggregate data? Um, and then there's a linked question, which is asking about what would accountability mechanisms look like for ensuring that gender and age disaggregated data become a reality, including within the action coalitions. So um, several questions asking about how do we become more aligned? How do we ensure accountability? What practical steps would you all as experts in the field recommend in terms of concrete action. Sorry, um, anyone who would like to, to start first on that one? Lauren, should we go back to you? Oh, please go ahead. Yeah, happy to take a bite. I, uh, I think um, uh, for me, basically, um, uh, the the things that need to happen, and uh, and here I'll just give an example about uh, you know some of the work that we've been doing in the context of a program that we have called Women Count, and uh, uh, as part of the program, essentially we support uh, several countries uh, to uh, really try to build uh, gender responsive uh, uh, statistical systems, if you will. So integrating a gender perspective in st all statistical uh, business operations, including. Uh, you know, uh, uh, plans, uh, production, and uh, and also data production, and also data accessibility and use. And here, one thing that we really found that was, I think, that's been a game changer, is that uh, the uh, in order to be uh, uh, to 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 be effective, uh, that work has to include different stakeholders, right? So we've created at the country level, for instance, if you will. Uh, coordination mechanisms for gender statistics, where there are several uh, agencies and uh, uh, stakeholders that are actually represented. And what you have is that you have different perspectives, uh, really uh, uh, a good collaboration between uh, producers and users, and that becomes, I think, a win-win situation for everyone. And uh, you know, in, in those countries where we've been successful, such as Kenya or Uganda, what we've seen is basically a very clear link from data to policy that was seamless. So because, you know, I think, you know, you have different groups that are really talking together on what is being produced, how that is being produced, and what is, going, what is it going to be used for. And to me, I think that's, that's really been the game changer. So if I, uh, looking at, I think, what needs to be done, I think it's really creating those platforms for collaboration to make sure that the different parts 
of the system, particularly at the national level, are joined up. And if that happens, I think there are good results that can follow. Fantastic. Thank you for those thoughts. Lauren? It's just building on Papa's great points. I think the key is to link the partnership with the capacity building efforts. Um, here in UNICEF, we're thinking about uh, innovations have been in violence against children surveys, looking at sexual violence amongst adolescents, including other indicators. And what's been really useful there is embedding the design of that research in national statistics offices together with ministries of gender and welfare. Uh, and from the beginning, uh, undertaking training and capacity on how to collect, analyze, and report uh, data and linking it firmly to policy, as Papa said. And then, of course, the third link is bridging the gap between policy and financing, moving the needle then on what the data is showing as gaps for uh, accelerated action and making sure that funding is going that direction, accompanied by legislative and policy reforms. We've seen that also happen in the area of immunization, um, where we've used innovative technologies, uh, something called Rapid Pro, which is an SMS-based platform to map households that may not um, be present on official sort of um, census data or national statistics registers. And so um, healthcare workers map households, particularly in uh, unmapped areas like urban slums, about vaccination coverage. And I think we can take lessons from the public health sector, also from the education sector, where data tools may be slightly more sophisticated, more innovative, with the partnerships between uh, sectoral government ministries, statistical offices, and the development community are really tightly together to get that data off the ground. And then, of course, there's the um, informal and more innovative data systems, which we've talked about a lot. And those do need to be rooted, ultimately, and long term in official data sets. But we need to also capture provocative data, um, for example, amongst IDP and refugee communities. Thank you. Lauren, with those very interesting initiatives to be embedding uh, new indicators within national uh, data systems, uh, has UNICEF or other UN agencies started to uh, monitor progress around that? Um, is there a system to check compliance over time to, to share good practice? If you could just talk a little more about um, the accountability piece. I'm just seeing multiple questions coming in and um, yeah, just thinking about what those answers could look like. Absolutely. And, you know, striking the right balance between um, prompting national action um, and also um, being advocates together through partnership is really how the UN works most successfully. So we issue annual reports, for example, on child marriage, which are jointly uh, using government statistical data and our own rigorous fact checking. Um, child marriage, FGM, all those uh, seven SDG indicators for, that we are the sort of UN home for is a mechanism. We also have for um, countries in armed conflict, we have special data and accountability mechanisms around, um, for example, children engaged in armed conflict, uh, sexual violence in conflict, which is reported to the Security Council um, and shared with member states. And then there are other ways, um, which I prefer, which are more informal sharing of accountability, which is making sure that data, if it's developed in partnership, is shared through things like parliaments, um, through research trainings that then lead to specific policy actions like national action plans linked to violence against children survey data. So um, having a plan from the beginning about where that data is going to go 
um, and how it will be used is, has been our most successful strategy. Um, but where we have been less successful is in the data we have around cost benefit cases and the investment case. So although we've been able to attract a lot of attention for issues like the cost of child marriage, uh, we have been less successful at then leveraging global resources for action on those. And I think that's an area for further exploration. Great, thanks very much, Lauren. Nicole, handing over to you and just flagging, um, there's an additional question which you might want to reflect on in terms of small um, organizations and asking uh, that many of these organizations are doing effective work with girls around the world. Are there efforts underway by larger organizations to share best practice and data collection? So that a larger combined data set is available. So I think you know what you're doing with your your eager tool is is perhaps um, one example of that. It'd be great to hear your thoughts. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thanks for that question, and also um, uh, Lauren and Papa for your thought, thoughts on um, the others. I, mean, I think Lauren, to, to your last point, I think Epps and Papa. I think also so important is. Sort of Bringing together a um, a collaboration of advisors and stakeholders together to help define what it is that its use would be useful, um, and by this we're interested not just in um, you know government ministry people, but all you know, but bringing in the donors and bringing in and voices of um, and voices of the populations affected. So. In Eager itself, what we're doing is right now we're pulling results from, for example, from recent systematic reviews and rating the strength of the evidence for each approach and outcome pair. Um, and um, and then we're also conducting our own systematic review, um, the results of which are going to be out um, in a couple of months, um, looking at um, interventions designed to address gender-related barriers to schooling. Um, and in both cases, um, we're trying to maintain rigorous standards of evidence, which also mean um, that you know we have to figure out a way <laughs> to get results from individual studies incorporated in, into the um, into Eager. But I think holding um, ourselves all you know ourselves accountable to rigorous evidence is absolutely critical um, in terms of allocating investments um, and driving and driving funding towards effective interventions. Um, and I, I, part of it is, is, is translating the, those findings that we, you know, I love the slides from, that you showed um, on the trends in data, but making that, um, making sure that reaches the people who make the decisions in a way that they hear it, right? Um, and I think that's all of our challenges and um, and and it's something you know we're very committed to to undertaking. Thanks. Great. Uh, thank you, Nicole. Um, just, sorry, dropped a glass there. Um, just reflecting on uh, the importance of um, sharing of methodologies. I mean, I, I do think that's something that 
we as GAGE have found increasingly that we're getting demands from both national governments and national research institutions who are not necessarily part of our consortium, but really wanting to understand what you know good practices in terms of asking the right types of questions and then what types of steps um, need to be taken to to use the data that, that does exist i guess um, reflecting on or building on what you were saying papa and so we have started to develop um, a number of research toolkits i'm very happy to send around links uh, later looking particularly what are the kinds of questions for example that you can ask multiple stakeholders in understanding problematics um, related to child marriage, for example. Um, you know, how can you undertake participatory research with young people in um, IDP or, or refugee camps? So really trying to share what it means to be working um, and asking those probing questions with the most vulnerable populations. So you know, I encourage people to check those out as well for in response to some of the questions that are coming in. Um, there is another question in which is asking what strategies can we implement to motivate girls and young women to regularly speak out and participate in consultations? Um, how can we meaningfully engage them and ensure that they feel their voices are heard and important? And I think this is a, a really important question uh, that is um, very much, uh, I think, highlights some of the challenges within the current measurement of the SDGs. Uh, you know, there's a big focus on measuring women's political empowerment, but we're not then at the moment measuring what the antecedents are in adolescence. What does it mean for, for young um, adolescent uh, girls and, and young women to, to have voice and agency? How can we capture that? I think it's you know, part of the discussion we've been having around what does empowerment look like? So can I ask you, Lauren, to, to start, um, please, with a, an answer for that question? Thanks so much. And uh, yes, you know, in UNICEF, we have several guidelines and toolkits around adolescent participation and safe spaces. It's a fundamental right to participate, and we must make that right uh, possible. Uh, and I think the basic premise behind this is that we have to create the space. We have to create the space by ste stepping aside and making sure that there are mechanisms available, whether they're formal ones like uh, young people's parliaments or more informal ones that are community-based that help be facilitated like girls safe spaces that many of our NGO partners are so good at. Um, dedicated spaces for girls to speak out and feel safe in speaking out with adequate protections have to be in place, otherwise um, they are just tokenistic. Um, what I really like too is the importance of linking those platforms to a clear advocacy and policy case. So for example, really working with um, groups of girls in Indonesia to speak out about reforms they'd like to see in the child marriage law and making that a formal part of a consultation process on legislative reform. Um, working with uh, girls around the kinds of frameworks they'd like to see adjusted on sexual violence in Zimbabwe. Or recently when I was in Afghanistan, I met with young people, girls only groups, talking about the dissatisfactions in the informal education system um, and how that could be improved. And that was really clearly linked to uh, funded programs supported by us to see how we could then improve those education. So, so qualitative feedback mechanisms as well as speak out mechanisms. And I think generation equality was one exciting and amazing opportunity we were looking forward to, to see what dedicated space we could create with a clear channel for change. 
And now um, with COVID-19, I think we really, I use the word reset very deliberately. What, what can we reset in terms of the virtual mechanisms and how can we tie those um, to the changes we want to see right away? Thank you, Nicola. Thank you, Lauren. Papa, over to you. Yeah, uh, thanks very much. And uh, and I think uh, for, uh, for me, it's, uh, um, um, it boils down to also better understanding how we start to measure these things better, right? So, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think uh, as a was, I think Nicole who said earlier that, uh, you know, some of the measures that we have have been here for, for you know, I don't know for how long, uh, same surveys that we conduct and so on. But really, I think not changing essentially as times change because new forms of mobilization, new forms of participation are emerging in terms of, you know, whether it's uh, it's online or, you know, with new technologies. Basically, girls, I, I think, are finding ways to to participate in civil, civil and civic life better uh, in other forms. And But I think our measurement frameworks have not, have not really caught up to that yet. And I think, you know, in this case, I think we really need to do a better job at capturing it, understanding it, and it starts with talking to them about it. So uh, talking to young people about how they engage and, uh, and basically how we can we can adjust our, our, our measurement frameworks to, to, to really reflect that better. But I think, uh, you know, again, just thinking about, for instance, the, this forum that we have, and I think, you know, the discussion is really excellent. But uh, also, I think in forums, uh, in forums like this, we also should bring in their own voices so, to make sure that you know young people essentially are represented in a panel like this to to also talk about you know talk for themselves rather than uh, us talking for them. Thank you. Excellent point. Thank you, Papa. Uh, Nicole. Thanks. Um, yeah, no, really good points. And I, the question of participation, I think, is always super interesting because I, it, I think we have not yet done a great job of defining defining it and how to measure it. I think, you know, showing up at a rally where you're holding a sign and you're not even really sure what it means, does that count as participation um, versus having you know, some critical consciousness around the issues and making you know, making a plan to act, even if it's in very small ways, you know, in your daily, in, the, in the one's daily life versus, you know, something. So I think, anyway, I think there, it's really, it's really an interesting um, measurement challenge, <laughs> but one um, that um, if it is something that we want to foster and um, and encourage, which I agree, we, we should, we need to figure out how to do it better and that means we need to also know how to measure it. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, I think, uh, I think that's, that's definitely an area, another area where we have a ways to go as a field. Just great point there. Uh, thank you, Nicole. So I think we're coming up to the, the end of our session together. Um, I will go back to the panel for one final um, call for action that I just wanted to summarize very briefly some of the, the critical themes that I think have been emerging and I think will give us um, opportunities for, for future conversations with subsets of all of those who have joined. 
today. Um, so I think a very powerful point made um, by the audience and then follow up by the panelists was really about uh, the need to take a, a radical and strategic approach uh, to data, um, given how critical it is in ensuring the visibility of, of girls and the diversity of their experiences. Uh, there's also been some really important points and questions related to intersectionality. So, you know, the critical need for gender and age disaggregated data, but making sure we're also finding ways to regularly and systematically count um, diverse groups, um, particularly, for example, young people with disabilities or those in humanitarian um, contexts, such as in, you know, refugee or IDP settings. Um, some really interesting um, thoughts have also emerged about the diversity of methods in which we should be investing. Um, so combining the insights of, of big data, data that uh, the private sector can contribute to in particular their online data, but also making sure we're um, utilizing um, approaches that will really give um, an opportunity for, for young people to, to voice their thoughts, perceptions, and, and priorities through creative, qualitative, and, and participatory methods and, and finding ways to, to have those types of approaches taken more seriously by decision makers. Um, there's also been, I think, a really interesting point about how we have to become more timely with our work um, and how we have to think about ways in which to communicate um, findings in real time more effectively. There's, you know, as we all know, um, long lag times, particularly in, in academia, but I think also in the think tank and policy world as well. And I, I think you know, we do need to start thinking out of the box in terms of how we can share um, findings in, in real time. Um, in ways that, that reach decision makers so they, they can take action. And I think um, the current pandemic really puts a, a strong pressure on, on us all to, to become more innovative in, in that space. Um, and then some very powerful points made about um, you know, what really needs to, to shift is the use of the data and then investment against what the, the data is telling us about um, the gaps in adolescent uh, girls' lives. So, um, yeah, a very um, rich set of themes that have been emerging. What we will do is share with the panelists the, the full list of questions. We weren't able to, to go through them all. There's been some fantastically creative ideas coming in. It's always hard to, to juggle in these kinds of forums so that everyone gets a voice, but we will share that. And if there are any um, that you want to follow up on, then, then please do so. So um, I would like to conclude by thanking our panelists very much for their time and energy today. Uh, I think it's been a, a fascinating conversation. We look forward to, to more of these. And I'd just like to hand over to each of the panelists um, for a, a 30 second um, reflection on you know, priorities that have emerged for you today and that we should all be thinking about as we, we move forward in this space. So perhaps starting from Nicole first this time. Sure. Thank you, and I, I really thank you for pulling this panel together. Um, it's a really great opportunity, and I'm just super inspired by everybody's interest in data and evidence. <laughs> it's, um, it's, yeah, so I think my key thoughts are we got to still ensure rigor. We need to make sure that the evidence is used and um, encourage people to use Org to um, explore some of that and 
to um, share with you very soon um, syntheses and translations of that, um, that data for impact. Thank you. Great, thanks, Nicole. Papa? Yeah, again, uh, just uh, joining Nicole to say thank you for, for really this uh, organizing this excellent panel. And thank you to Nicola, to you too, for really, I think, uh, a brilliant moderation. So, uh, and to the audience for really some engaging questions. So thank you again. I think uh, my final thought is just to say, let's not let a crisis go to waste. And in this case, again, there will be lots of things done in the response. And we need to make sure that we seize this opportunity to really affect uh, and uh, basically have some of these priorities that we are discussing on the policy agenda and uh, basically fund it as part of the, the, the work that countries will be doing. Thank you. Very critical points. Thank you, Papa. Lauren. Thank you so much. And really, it's been a fabulous panel, and I've definitely learned more than I spoke. So thank you to the audience for the stimulating questions, which will keep me thinking with my team long afterwards. Um, I think my critical thought is data has to be with and for girls. Um, and we learn more about what's missing from the data sets than what's there. And it's no accident, as I talked about, that COVID-19 is highlighting where we have massive gaps in data in general in the humanitarian space and particularly in areas like voice and agency, empowerment, norms, uh, and violence. And these are the issues we need to double down our efforts, including investments, advocacy, and policy action together with girls. Um, and I also call for a collective partnership on this. I think we're much more powerful and can affect much greater change if we work together, the business communities, the public sector, UN, and civil society together with girls themselves. So. Thank you for the discussion, and let's move forward together with accelerated speed. Over. Thanks so much, Lauren. Well, a huge thank you to the panelists once again, and also to our fabulous audience. You've been very active and supportive. We really appreciate you staying with us the, the whole time. Um, we hope that we've given you plenty of food for thought and to move together in a, a partnership to tackle these challenges um, and so that we can improve the lives of of adolescent girls um, everywhere. So thank you all, take care. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.